Hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other Conversations podcast, where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. You know, uh, as human beings, we, we really don't like unresolved endings, right? Like, we just don't like them. I don't know about you guys, like, when I walk out of a movie theater, I want to feel like everything was resolved in the movie. Like, all the tensions, all the questions, all the unanswered little threads all came to conclusion. I want to feel like the good guy survived and, and ultimately everything came out on top. But have you guys ever been to one of those movies where that's not what happens at all and you walk out of the movie theater just feeling totally frustrated <laughs> because they left you hanging? Usually because they wanted to do a sequel at some point and they're trying to keep you sucked in, right? Have you guys ever seen the movie Inception? Has anyone ever seen that? Yeah, you gotta tell me because I don't know how much explaining to do. Okay, it's, so it's the, whole, the whole movie, and I'm gonna spare you all the sci-fi details, but they, they find a way to break into people's minds and through their dreams, and the whole movie is about Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio trying to, to become free so he can go back to America and see his little kids. And so the whole time you're just rooting for him, like, yeah, get, you know, you do what you need to do to get back to your kids. Um, but then at the end of the movie, he gets lost in like the 12th dimension level of dream state or whatever, and you're like, oh, he's never going to get back. And then somehow by the end of the movie, he miraculously seems to get out, and he has this little top that he spins. And if it, if it, if it topples, that means he's awake. If it doesn't topple, that means he's dreaming. And so at the very end of the movie, he spins his top after he just finally sees his kids, and it kind of half topples, and then they end the movie. And you're like, is he really awake? Is he dreaming? Did he really see his kids? Did he really win? I don't know. And you just walk out of the movie just so angsty and frustrated because you don't really know. Who does that, right? Who makes stories like that? Well, that's the book of Acts. That's basically how it ends. Uh, spoiler alert. So, um, you know, there's something in us as humans that just hate it when things aren't resolved. And I'll be honest with you guys, if you read ahead in our text, you know that Acts 28 just ends completely unresolved. <laughs> like, what happens to Paul? What happens? He doesn't stand before Caesar. I mean, we don't see some epic showdown. We don't see the, the Pharisees get what's coming to them. We don't see any of that kind of stuff happen. Ultimately, it just sort of ends in an anticlimactic and unended and open-ended kind of way, which is totally frustrating uh, in one sense. But, but I think that we have something to learn from that as Christians. Because to be a Christian is to live in a really uncomfortable, awkward, tense place that theologians call the already not yet. Can you guys say that? Already not yet. You sound like you're wearing masks. Um, <laughs> the already not yet. Okay. Um, the already not yet. And it's exactly, the theological idea is exactly what it sounds like. As Christians, we stand in this particular point in time, and it's the already, it's also the not yet. The already means that Jesus has already come, that it is finished, that atonement has been made and paid for, that the kingdom of God is, is advancing and here, yet at the same time, it's not yet. We're still waiting, we're still longing. So as Christians, we're given these eternal uh, new souls, these eternal new appetites 
but we're still stuck in these physical, limited, dying bodies. And so we're like our soul just aches for the eternal. It aches for the fully um, resolved kingdom of God to become uh, here in, in totality, but yet we're still limited. Does that make sense? It's this, this tension as Christians of the already not yet. So it's fitting, I think, in one sense that the book of Acts sort of ends with tension. It acts, it acts sort of ends unresolved. And what I wanna discuss and what I wanna consider with you guys this morning is the question, how do we as Christians live in the tension of the already not yet? How do we live in the tension of the already not yet? How do we live with that push, that push pull that we're longing for something that just simply isn't here yet? I think Acts, the way it ends, has something to teach us about that. But before we get into that, let's, let's look at the passage. So Acts 28, we're gonna pick up the story in verse 11. Let's just walk through the passage together, verse by verse, and then we'll conclude with, I think, some answers to that question. So if you remember, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem in the temple, and he was, he was arrested because a mob had started of probably the Ephesian Jews that were there uh, for the feast that started a mob to try to see Paul killed. The Romans interjected themselves and ultimately arrested Paul in order to keep him from uh, being killed, essentially. Paul lets them know that he is a Roman citizen, and as such, he has this privilege of being able to appeal to Caesar, meaning that he gets to appeal to a higher court. Okay, similar to our system that we have of government today, we appeal to a higher court. Paul appeals to Caesar, the highest court. And so after giving his case about four or five times before all of these different courts, ultimately Paul ends up getting transferred from Judea um, across the Mediterranean all the way up to Italy, ultimately to Rome, to have his day in court before Caesar which was really the ancient world. It was all the way across the ancient world. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Paul's journey um, on the ship as a prisoner, him and his two friends, Luke and Aristarchus, across the Mediterranean. And we saw how they really left at the wrong time of year. A massive storm called the Northeaster blew them off their course as they were coming around the island of Crete. Seth, would you throw that map up actually for me really quick so that you guys can kind of see what I'm talking about? So you can see here the red line. They went down under the island of Crete and completely got blown off, of course. They spent two weeks out at sea thinking that they were gonna die, thinking it was the end. God had other plans for Paul. His intention had always been to deliver Paul to Rome. So after two weeks, they just so happened to land on the island of Malta, which is over here at the far left. Um, and last week, we looked at Paul's experience on the island of Malta as he encountered sort of the native people there who graciously welcomed him um, with open arms. So he spent um, the winter there at Malta, and that's exactly where we pick up here in verse 11. You can leave that up for a minute, Seth. Verse 11, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium, and after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putiole. I don't know how to pronounce that. I practiced it this morning, and I still can't. What do you guys think? What is it? P-U, somebody give me, somebody give me a guess. Come on. P-U-T-E-O-L-I. P-O-P-O-T-E-L-I. You guys aren't even going to be brave this morning and even try. You know, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Usually when you're a pastor, you just, you pretend like you know, 
But then, you know, when you forget how you pretended, to, that, that's just all bad. Anyways, these are travel details. So Paul is making his way from Malta up to Rome. You can see it's his last leg of his journey. Okay, um, and what's interesting is that Luke notes that the ship, the vessel that they hop on, that was uh, wintering there in Malta, has these twin figurine gods on the front of it, and they're the gods of Zeus's sons, the two Zeus's two sons, basically. They were the gods that were believed that were going to uh, give you sort of safe uh, passage on the on the sea. I think Luke includes this detail kind of as a almost as a joke. Uh, because it was actually Paul's God, it was actually Yahweh God that delivered um, these guys from the massive storm. And now they hop on another ship that just so happens to have carved on the front of it these two sons of Zeus. It's kind of hilarious. But anyways, they make their way up north um, to Regium, and this one that I can't pronounce. Um, In verse 14, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apias and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Now, this is really interesting. If you remember, it's been about 25 years since Jesus went to the cross, rose, ascended, the Holy Spirit came. Okay, so the, the, the gospel and Christianity has spread really all throughout the ancient world. Now, Paul, the missionary, he's never been to any of these cities, and he's never been to Rome. But when he arrives, there's Christians already there waiting to greet him. The gospel has absolutely spread like wildfire throughout the ancient world. And these Christians go out of their way to meet Paul. Now, I think these Christians that Paul interacts with here, I think they teach us some things about Christians. They teach us some, just some quick principles about, about things that ought to be known about us as Christians. First of all, these guys have instant relationship with Paul. They don't know Paul. Paul's never been here. They hear that the Apostle Paul is coming, and they make the journey. They, make the, 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 they travel to where they need to go in order to intersect with Paul, and instantly he finds communion with him. Did you notice it said, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage? As Christians, we have this unique ability to connect with each other, even if we don't know each other, just simply because we have the same blood flowing through our veins. Have you ever had that before? Where you, you met somebody from an entirely different culture, an entirely different world, and because you're Christians, you just have this instant connection. That's how we ought to be known as Christians. Another thing we learn about these guys is that Christians are to be hospitable. Christians are to be hospitable. Did you notice that these guys from Regium, they immediately invite Paul and his company and take care of them. They immediately invite them to stay with them. And a lot of commentators agree that they think that these Christians actually invited not only Paul and Luke and Aristarchus, but probably his Roman accompaniment and probably even some of the people uh, that were sailing the ship. That these Christians just invited them in. Non-believers, they just showed instant hospitality, instant care and love for these guys. I think that's beautiful. Another thing this teaches about Christians is that Christians are to encourage one another. These guys traveled all this way in order to encourage Paul. That's what we're called to do. And you know, sometimes we overthink that. We overthink encouragement a little bit. Especially me, like as a pastor, if somebody's struggling, having a hard time, I feel like because I'm a professional Christian, like I have to have like really good things to say. Like you show up at the hospital and you just have like the perfect verse and the perfect, you know, systematic theological response to suffering and evil and all this stuff. And that usually goes bad for me. So I've learned actually just to shut my mouth and just be there 
to be present. And it's incredible, actually, as Christians, sometimes the most encouraging thing you can do is just to show up. These guys, they, they hear Paul's coming, and they go out of their way to go and intersect with him, just to be with him. They know this is a, a tense moment for Paul. I mean, he's, he's in prison. He's being, he's being transferred as a prisoner to stand before Caesar, and they come and they encourage him. I just think that's beautiful. Uh, verse 16, we see the setting here of the Apostle Paul. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, this isn't what you would assume. You would assume Paul's going to be in some sort of a dungeon or a prison, a Roman jail. But in fact, Paul, being a Roman citizen, being a fairly well-respected and trusted individual at this point, they allow Paul to basically rent himself an apartment on his own dime. Um, and the, the catch is, is he's on house arrest. And he can't leave. Um, and instead of having the little ankle bracelet, um, he literally is chained to a Roman guard. Okay, 24 hours a day, uh, every three hours probably would trade out um, a different guard. So that's, that's the setting for the next two years of Paul's ministry is that he is basically on house arrest. Okay, verse 17. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. You know, stop right there for a minute. It's important to remember, by the way, that even though Judaism was primarily in Jerusalem, there was something called the diaspora, the dispersed Jews. And that means that, that, that the Jewish people were literally scattered all over and all across the ancient world, all the way to Rome. And there were synagogues and, and leadership all over the place. So um, Judaism had quite a bit of a home base and a station in Rome. And if you remember, Paul's desire in going to Rome wasn't just to plead his case before Caesar. His desire in going to Rome was to make uh, disciples, to plant churches, to see Christians come to Christ, to encourage the saints, to engage his brothers, his Jewish brothers, with the truth of the gospel. So the first thing Paul does, even though he's a prisoner, the first thing Paul does is he calls for the Jewish leadership to come to his house, to entertain them, not entertain, but to, to, to be hospitable and to preach the gospel. So after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, but because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Let me break this down a little bit. So Paul's opening address to the Jewish leadership in Rome, essentially he says three things. First of all, he says, I'm innocent. Okay, he, he says, I'm innocent. Um, he says, I have done nothing against my people or the customs of our fathers. My arrest, my imprisonment, my transfer from Judea to Rome has nothing to do with anything that I've done against God's law or against the law of our people or even against the Roman law. He makes that really clear. Secondly, he lets them know that he loves and has deep affection for them to these Jewish leaders. He calls them brothers. You notice that? He calls them brothers. He says, in regards to the, uh, the prophets, and the patriarchs, he, says, he calls them our fathers. They're our fathers. And most interestingly, he says, I had no charge to bring against my nation. Now, Paul had every reason to bring a charge against the nation of Israel at this point. Their leadership has wrongly accused Paul. They have an ax to grind. They have a bent against Paul. They want to see him destroyed. But yet Paul in no way has anything against Israel. 
He's simply focused on defending himself rather than he is focused on getting his accusers. And then thirdly, he says this really interesting thing. He says, that I've asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Now, it might be interesting. You might, you might think about that and be like, wait a minute. Paul's wearing a chain because he got accused of something and he's a prisoner. Now, Paul didn't see it that way. He didn't see his chain as being something uh, having to do with, with, with Rome or with um, him being a prisoner. He saw his chain as an honor and he saw his chain as something that he purposely chose to carry for the purpose of bringing the gospel to Rome. I think this gives us a little window into Paul's reasoning, actually, in appealing to Caesar. I think partially Paul appealed to Caesar because he knew he wasn't gonna get a fair trial otherwise. But I think Paul also was just so deeply a missionary. He wanted to reach Rome, as he even states in the book of Romans. He wanted to reach Rome for the purpose of bringing the gospel for the purpose of encouraging the saints. And he says to these guys, hey, I'm wearing this chain because I love you. And I'm wearing this chain because of the gospel. And I'm wearing this chain willingly because as he says in Romans, he would literally go himself to eternal hell if it meant that his people, the Jews, could come to know Christ. He has such an affection for them. He's like, make make no mistake, the reason I got arrested was because of the gospel. And the reason I'm here is because I want you to hear the gospel. I just think that's beautiful. Verse 21, they said to him, that is the Jewish leadership, we've received no letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we, what we desire to hear from you, pardon me, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against You notice they call Christianity a sect. That was how Christianity was regarded for the first 30 years, really, of Christian life. Uh, They were considered to be a branch of Judaism, just another flavor, another sect of Judaism. And strangely, that's actually why the Christians avoided much persecution from Rome. State-sponsored persecution didn't come uh, really until about 64, 65 AD because because Rome just assumed Christians were Jews that had a little bit of a different theology. Okay, now that all changes in a few years, as we'll see, um, as soon as Nero basically um, decides that he's gonna see Christians uh, persecuted and ultimately put to death. But they basically view this as a sect of Judaism. It's interesting, too, that these Jews don't have a clue about anything that Paul's talking about. Like, you would think that the, the Sanhedrin would have sent ahead letters or, or sort of given word, hey, this guy Paul's coming, you need to make sure that he um, ultimately is executed because he's an enemy of Judaism or whatever. None of that happens. These guys don't have a clue who Paul is. And Paul's kind of, I think, surprised by that. And we don't know exactly why that is. It could have been that the letters that were sent um, to the Jewish leadership in Rome were lost in the sea, in the shipwreck. It could have been that the Jews in Judea knew they really didn't have a case against Paul. You know, maybe that would stand up with uh, Governor Felix, who they sort of had some sway with, but that's not going to stand uh, with the emperor of the basically the ancient world, Caesar Nero. Could be that. We don't know. But verse 23, when they had op- appointed a day for him, that is Paul, they, being the religious leaders, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to two things, the kingdom of God 
in trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So the Jewish leadership, they come to Paul's little rented apartment where he's chained to a Roman guard and little Jewish Paul sits there, probably on a stool like this, and he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus Christ to these Jewish leaders from morning until evening. It's incredible. Now, there, there's something here that I need you to see. In case, in case you're new and in case you're wondering, why is this guy up here sitting here talking about the Bible for an hour? It won't be an hour, I promise, uh, for, you know, 59 minutes. Um, what's up with that? What is Paul doing here? He's, he's sitting down and testifying to the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ from the scriptures. Theologians call this the Christ-centered biblical exposition. It means that we sit down, we open the Bible as our highest authority, and we expose, exposit, extract the truth from that for the purpose of illuminating the person of Jesus Christ and his glory and his kingdom. That's why we devote time to this every Sunday. That's why churches should devote time to the exposition of the scripture for the purpose of revealing Christ in his scripture. Amen. That's what Jesus or that's what Paul did. He opened up Moses, he opened up the prophets, he opened up the law, and he expounded how all of the Old Testament pointed to one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And you gotta, I mean, you gotta wonder, what was Paul talking about? He was probably talking about the fact that Christ is the greater David, that Christ was the greater Moses. He probably took him to Genesis chapter three when it talked about the, uh, the proto-euangelion, the first good news when God first promised that he was going to deliver humanity, that the head of the snake would be crushed, right, by the seed of the woman. And, and talked about how Jesus was the fulfillment of that, about how the nation of Israel was really just a picture, a foreshadow of a greater kingdom, a greater nation that would be ruled in person by the resurrected Jesus Christ. He probably, he probably brought them to each of these places. He probably brought them to Isaiah 53 where it talks about the lamb being led before the slaughter and by his stripes we were healed. And he probably brought him to Psalm chapter 22 where it talks about uh, this, this messianic figure having his bones um, pulled out but not broken and his beard hairs pulled out and all of these places in the Old Testament and he just exposed the person of Christ. It's beautiful. Notice the reaction in verse 24. And some of the Jewish, leader, Jewish leaders were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Okay, so what Paul's about to say here, it really set them off. <laughs> it really was not something very, very popular. Here's what Paul says to them. He says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, the following. Go to this people, God says to Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And Paul says this, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles the bacon-eating Gentiles instead of you. Okay, let me just tell you how insulting that would be. That would be like someone coming up to you and being opening up the book of Matthew where Jesus tells the Pharisees that they're whitewashed tombs and said, 
this is you. How would you feel about that? How would you feel about that if you were a highly respected, highly pious religious leader? I mean, Paul basically just slapped him in the face by saying that this prophecy uh, spoken from God through Isaiah that Israel was going to reject Messiah is totally fulfilled in these guys, totally insulting. It's actually the same exact passage that Jesus used when he confronted the religious leaders, the Pharisees. But there's something here I just want you to see really quickly. There's a progression to what God says through Isaiah that, that uh, Paul is quoting. The, the progression, progression is this, and you might write it down, and you might meditate on it a little bit later because I think it's important. The progression is that passive hearing leads to active deafness, which leads to inoperable blindness. Okay? Passive hearing leads to active deafness, which leads to inoperable blindness. Okay? What God is saying is, is that, Israel, you have been so passive for so long about hearing my words that you have now grown to a point where you're actively defying me. Well, where do we see that? How about the Jews putting Christ on the cross? That's a pretty active defiance. And that leads to a point of inoperable blindness. In other words, it gets to a point where your heart has been so hardened that you're beyond. I want my heart to be listening to God at the very beginning of that sequence. I don't ever wanna get to the passive hearing. I don't wanna get to the point where I'm not opening the scripture and saying, God, what do you have to say to me? Lord, what do you wanna work in me? What are you trying to work out in me? What are the friction points? What are the edges that need to be knocked off in my heart? I don't ever wanna get to that point because I wanna be listening to God's word every day so that I don't get to the point where now I'm plugging my ears and going, la, 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 I don't wanna hear it, which ultimately will lead to inoperable blindness. I just don't wanna go there. You know, it's, it's crazy sometimes to think about how did the Jews miss it? They knew the scriptures. They had them memorized in multiple languages. They missed it because passive hearing leads to active deafness, which leads to inoperable blindness. It was just a passive progression of tuning out the voice of God. And then we hear the last verses of the book of Acts. You ready? Then the king rose. By the way, have you ever been doing this where you're watching a movie and, and like everything just went to hell in a handbasket and you're thinking, how are they gonna f- fix all this? And then you like, if you're watching it on your computer, you scroll down to see how much time's left and there's like three minutes left. You're like, how are they gonna resolve this in three minutes? Okay, Paul's still sitting and he's still on house arrest. Nothing's changed. We got two verses to solve it. Is it gonna happen? Let's see, verse 30. Then the king rose Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse 30, I was like, the king, who's that? Oh, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. That's pretty unsatisfactory, isn't it? (laughs) There's gotta be another chapter somewhere, right? I mean, is it lost? Like, what happened? I mean, some scholars literally think that it's lost. It It just doesn't end like you think it's going to end. I mean, we don't hear about any of the things we want to hear about. Like, what happened? Did Paul stand before Caesar? Like, what happened? Did he get arrested? Did he get set free? Did he go on another missions trip? Did people get saved in Rome? Like, what happened? Okay, so I want to put a parenthesis. I want you to hold on to that frustration because I'm going to come back to it. Put a parenthesis, and I just want to talk about what happened because we, we kind of know a little bit of what happened, but we have to leave the Bible 
to get that. We have to go to some extra biblical history, um, and we have to leave the book of Acts a little bit to find it. So just in three minutes, let me just tell you what we know happened after this book. Is anyone curious? Okay, cool. I was really curious too. Okay. So here's what we know happened. So we know that Paul was let go. We know that he was set free. There was no case against Paul. We know he was set free. And we know that when he was set free and when he was released, he went on some kind of another missionary journey. And most biblical scholars agree that they think Paul went to Spain after he was released. They think that because in the book of Romans, he states that as his intention to go to Spain. It's in that time after Paul's released that he actually writes two familiar letters that you might be familiar with in the Bible. First Timothy and Titus. That's the time frame that Paul writes those two letters. And so we can learn a little bit about what Paul's doing and, and, and kind of how he's feeling just simply by looking at those two letters in that period. A few years go by, and unfortunately, Paul is rearrested again, but this time the climate has totally changed towards Christians. At this point, Caesar and Nero has basically lost his marbles, okay? He is systematically persecuting and killing and annihilating Christians. Christians are being thrown into the arena, eaten by lions. Christians are being dipped in wax and burned alive in his gardens. Um, he lost his mind. It's believed that Caesar Nero burned down half of Rome and then decided he needed a scapegoat, so he blamed it on the Christians. And that was a really hard season for Christianity. And around that time, Paul was arrested again, this time not in a nice cozy apartment where he um, you know, was, was given some freedoms. This time, it was in a Roman jail. And this time... Paul is old, and he's tired. And it's in this place that Paul writes 2 Timothy, if you want to go read that. And you remember him saying towards the end of the book, he says, bring my cloak, bring my parchments. I'm an old man. I'm cold. Bring my books. <laughs> and Paul's tired. And not too long after that, maybe in a matter of a few years, they believe Paul was beheaded as a martyr. So that's the end. But that's not the end that we get in the book of Acts, is it? For some reason, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he just leaves it totally wide open, leaves us totally hanging. And I want to talk about that with you guys, because I think there's some things we can learn from that. So how do we deal with the tension of unfinished stories? How do we deal with the anti-climax of our own story? How do we deal with the tense uh, place that we feel like we're in right now where we're in the already, not yet? How do we deal with that? I think Acts 28, the way it ends, has some things to teach us about that. So four things. Why don't you write them down really quick, and I'll go through them. Number one, I think the way Acts ends reminds us of, number one, a reality check. Number two, a perspective shift. Number three, an encouragement. And number four, an imperative. A reality check, a perspective shift, an encouragement, and an imperative. I'll just go through these quickly. First, a reality check. Okay, why does the book of Acts end so abruptly without resolution? Well, I think the answer to that question is really simple. Are you ready? That's where Luke was at when he wrote the book. <laughs> okay. Luke, was, Luke, Luke wrote the book while Paul was sitting in house arrest for two years. I, I, don't, I don't think Luke knew. I don't think Luke had lived past that point yet. I think, I think it's very simple. That, that's what Paul knew. And that reminds us of a very important point. And that point is this, that this book in your hand is not a fairy tale. It's not a novel. It's a historical fact. 
Okay, Paul isn't sitting down, or Luke, pardon me, isn't sitting down to write a really exciting story that concludes and ends the way you want. Luke is sitting down to record the evidences of not only Christ and his ascension, um, but the birth and the growth of the church and the Holy Spirit through believers. He's recording those events. It's reality, it's not a fairy tale. That's actually encouraging. It should be encouraging for you and I that our faith is not rooted in some really well-crafted fairy tale story. Our faith is, in fact, rooted in the historical credibility of the account of an extremely brilliant, extremely respected historian named Dr. Luke, who was actually here witnessing these events. Okay, this is, this is very good, very credible, very historically reliable, evidential truth that we're reading. It's not a fairy tale, okay? That's encouraging. But I think it reminds us of another truth, too, that, that we need to think of, and that is that your faith journey, if I can use that language, your, your Christian experience, it's not a fairy tale. It's real. I don't know about you guys, but when I, when I first got saved, I sort of had all these ideas about what I thought 31-year-old Christian Sam was gonna be like and what I thought church planning was gonna be like and what I thought pastoral ministry was gonna be like and being a husband was gonna be like, following Christ um, in my life. I had all these ideas that were very romanticized. They were very idealistic. And then I actually followed Jesus for the last 15 years since I got saved. And you know what I found? It's not a fairy tale. <laughs> It's reality, and it's really hard. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's kind of like when you met your wife, you know, you used to sit while you were dating and watch these stupid chick flicks, just stupid chick flicks, you know, where the guy meets a girl and they know each other for three days and it's like, oh, it's fate and we just, we're perfect and then, you know, nothing ever happens. Well, they always have one little falling out, you know, but they get back together and, and uh, my wife and I used to love those movies. Now we hate them, we just can't stand them. We're like, we watch them like, that's not real life! If it was real life, count me out, because that's so shallow. Man, like, it's real marriages when you know each other. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know each other. You know all of each other's flaws. You're known by each other. And that is so much more beautiful than the idea of marriage, even though it's harder. The book of Acts is not a fairy tale. It's a reality. And you know what? People try to sell a fairy tale version of Christianity all the time because they think that it's more appealing, but it's actually detrimental. It's called the prosperity gospel. Hey, man, if you just do the right things, your Christian experience is going to be awesome. And if, you just, if you're just like stay a virgin and you court instead of date, you're going to have the best marriage ever. Maybe not. Maybe not. Hey, man, if you just don't sin, you don't screw up, you just be a good person, have enough faith, God's going to do it. No, not necessarily. Tell that to the Apostle Paul. He lost his head. Okay? The reality of the Christian experience is not a fairy tale. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. Our job is to bring heaven to earth, not to make earth heaven. And this idea that if we just do the right things, we can have heaven now, uh, best life now, no thank you. Okay? If this is best life now, then heaven's going to be terrible. Our best life is not now. We live for the kingdom of God into the future. That means, that doesn't mean that we can't have a great life now, but we live here to what? Be in chains for Christ. In chains for the gospel. That was Paul's perspective. There is a rest coming. There is a happy, now let me say this. There is a happily ever after coming, but it ain't here. Okay? It's not here. And you can spend the rest of your life chasing it here, but you're going to be disappointed. The happily ever ever, ever, 
Happily, speaking in tongues. Does anyone have a translation? The happily ever after is coming, but it's not here now. Now we work, we labor, okay? We labor with his yoke, which is easy and is light. The second thing, the way the book of Acts ends reminds us of is a perspective shift. Now you need to ask the question, and, and, and maybe, maybe you won't, but you need to ask the question, Luke, why are you ending the book of Acts with all this stuff about Israel rejecting the gospel? What is up with that? Okay. And I think the answer is very simple. The answer is that Luke is trying to lead us in his narrative. He's trying to lead us to see that there has been a seismic shift in what the kingdom of God now is versus what it was before. When you read the Old Testament, it is about the theocratic nation. It's the nation of Israel led by God, and it's God manifesting his glory through the nation of Israel, a tangible, physical, national identity, Israel. When Christ comes, everything shifts. The kingdom of God is not now through a nation, it is through his church. And the glory of God is now seen through the metaphysical, unseen, the kingdom of God invisible in this world, not through some nation. Okay, that has shifted. And what Luke wants us to see is, hey, everything has changed. Everything has changed. Now, what's so interesting is that the Jewish leaders are completely blind to the Messiah and completely blind to his kingdom. Why? Because they're still expecting the one they want. Because they're expecting the one they want, they miss the one they need. And I would suggest to you that whatever kingdom you want is going to be the Messiah you look to. If you think it's America, if you think it's comfort, if you think it's health, wealth, prosperity, if you think it's being smarter, being more talented, being more influential, being more gifted, that becomes your idea of the kingdom you want to live in, then your Messiah will be anything that gets you there. And then you're going to start having heart palpitations because that Messiah is not going to get you there. The reason the Jews missed it is because they didn't want Christ's kingdom. They wanted their kingdom. They wanted Israel to be back, restored to its former glories, the glory days of Solomon, the golden era of Israel, where the, the, the monarchy was, was a superpower, a sovereign nation. They wanted Messiah to come in, flex his muscle, this Davidic-type king on a horse, take out Rome and reestablish the power. That's what they wanted. And because that's what they wanted, they were blind to what they needed. So I just want to ask you guys, what do you really want? The, the key, one of the keys to living in the already not yet is living into the unseen realm, living into the unseen kingdom, doing things that will not be praised on this earth, being willing to do things that there's no glory in. That's how Christianity has been so prof profound over the last 2,000 years, is Christians being willing to do the things no one else wants to do taking in the children that no one ever sees, caring for the least and the last and the lost, putting our resources into things that we'll never get glory for. That's building the kingdom of Christ. That's how we live in the already not yet. So I'd ask you, how, how are you doing with the things that are unseen? What kingdom really gets you excited? What kingdom really gets you out of bed? Is it, is it your kingdom or is it his kingdom? Thirdly, I think that the way the book of Acts ends is to, uh, to remind us of an encouragement, okay? So I want to bring an encouragement to you here. Now, I want to read again the last two verses of Acts. Verse 30 says, He lived there, Paul, lived there two years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Okay, now that might seem like an anticlimactic ending, but I actually think it's perfect. Perfect. 
Because here we find the Apostle Paul living within his limitations for the glory of Christ. If I had to put the Christian experience into a sentence, it probably would sound like that. Living within our limitations for the glory of Christ. Now, that doesn't preach very well in a society where we tell everyone that they're going to fulfill their ultimate joy if they get out of their limitations. But in Christianity, actually, Paul is in his limitations. He can't go anywhere. He's chained to a Roman guard. Okay? I would imagine that gets kind of awkward at times. Okay? Um, He's chained to a Roman guard. He's stuck in his house. The apostle Paul, this guy's like missionary dynamite. Let him out. He'll plant churches. He'll see things happen. Instead, God plops him in an apartment for two years, chained to a Roman guard. And you could say, what a waste of resources. Or you could look a little deeper and realize that while Paul was in prison for two years in house arrest, he wrote the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, the book of Philemon, and the book of Ephesians. Did I say Ephesians already? He wrote four books, whatever they are, he wrote them. Some of the most amazing scripture in the New Testament we have. Paul wrote that chained to a Roman guard. At the end of Philippians, he says this really interesting thing. He's like, uh, to the Philippian church in Macedonia, he's like, by the way, those in Caesar's house greet you. Like, what? What does that mean? It means that Roman guards were getting saved. (laughs) and bringing the gospel to Caesar's house. It means that Paul, while he's sitting in house arrest, is having a profound kingdom advancement effect on people, everyone that's around him. It's incredible. Within his limitations, the gospel is being proclaimed. It's beautiful. The book of Philemon is literally about a young man named Onesimus that came into relationship with Paul while he was on house arrest in these two years. And in that time, Onesimus became a spiritual son to Paul, and Paul became a spiritual father to him. So much so that Paul writes a letter to Philemon, who uh, Onesimus sinned against and ripped him off somehow, and basically says, hey, this boy is valuable to me. He's changed, and whatever's to his debt, I'll pay it, is Paul's letter. That all happened in Acts 28, verses 30 to 31. So at first glance, it might look like, what a bummer. But in reality, God used those two years of Paul's life for profound kingdom advancement. And I just want to ask you guys, first of all, what are your limitations? In other words, uh, what's your house arrest? What's your house arrest? What is, has what is God said, hey, this is where I want you. This is the pot that I'm going to plant you in. Your job is to grow in it. What is that for you? Instead of just being frustrated, feeling like you're not living up to your own uh, whatever, you know, you're not being all that you can be. Instead of that, say, hey, God, maybe you put me here. How do I live within these limitations? And secondly, I would ask you this. Who are you chained to? Don't look at your spouse. (laughs) That was a joke. Uh, (laughs) It went over like a lead balloon. Everyone's like, no, who are you chained to? Who has who God put you? Like, Paul is chained to a Roman guard. That poor Roman guard didn't have a chance, man. You got the Apostle Paul on the other end of your chain? You're going to get saved. Right? That's what we say about anybody that knows Stephanie McGowan. If they, if they meet Stephanie McGowan, they're going to get saved because she's going to make sure. Like, bought her a case of Bibles a month ago. She's already given them all out. It's great. Okay, so whoever gets chained to Apostle Paul, I mean, they're going to get saved. But who are you chained to? Who's the person bringing boxes to your house? Who's the person you're working with? Who's in your family? Who are the people that you're naturally already around? These were the people that the Apostle Paul ministered to. He didn't see this as a limitation. He saw it as exactly where God wanted him. And lastly, 
in closing, the fourth thing we need to remember about the way book, the book of Acts ends is an imperative. And that imperative is simply this. Acts ends at chapter 28 the way it ends because it's not over. It's not over. Acts continues through us. It is continuing now through us. Okay? We are the next chapter of Acts. And, and, and that, that paradigm shift changes everything because it goes from being like, wow, what an amazing thing God did. Wow, God really did great things through these guys. Wow, I wish we could be like them. To, uh, no, we are still in this season. The Holy Spirit is still here. He's still wanting to work just like he wanted to work in the first century. The gospel is just as powerful in Grant's past in 2020 during coronavirus as it was in the first century when he fell at Pentecost and thousands of people got saved. Do we really believe that? I mean, do we really believe the gospel is the answer and it is powerful? Do we really believe the Holy Spirit is just as, did he get less powerful in 2,000 years? Is he getting tired? No. No. The Holy Spirit is still working today. We are the next chapter of the book of Acts. And if you believe that, then you step into that. Instead of looking back and being like, wow, God, you did some great things. Maybe you'll do some good things again, but probably not through me. Come on. First of all, we need to readjust our idea of great things, right? <laughs> That's oftentimes more the problem is. So the imperative is that we are being called in to the next chapter of the book of Acts. So that concludes a phenomenal 28-chapter journey that we just took through the book of Acts. And honestly, I'm so glad we did it. I'm so glad we did it because I feel, and I hope you guys feel this too, I feel a profound sense of confidence in the gospel we preach and the God that we serve and the Jesus that's leading this church and his Holy Spirit's ability to awaken hearts. I just feel so confident that we got the right, more, the right word. And I'm so glad that we're part of this story. Amen. Why don't you guys stand and we'll pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the book of Acts. Lord, thank you so much that we get to be part of that story. That we're not spectators only. Thank you that your spirit is working. Jesus, thank you that you are alive. The grave could not hold you death could not hold you. That Jesus, you are the pastor of your church. And you are in the midst of that church working. Father, we just say yes to whatever you want to do through this church. You've placed us in this moment, in this season during coronavirus, during these racial tensions, during this, during this political polarization. You've placed us in this community of 38, 39,000 people on the river in southern Oregon. Would you put us here? This is where you want us. This is where you've placed us. I pray, God, that we would be useful here now. God, do what you want to do. We just surrender ourselves to you, Father. Lord, we love you so much. We pray you would be with us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And just so you guys know, we will get back to doing the table discussion. It's just really hard to do with a mask on. It's really hard to hear each other. So we haven't given up on that. It's still core to our, our DNA here. But just bear with us as we get through the complexity of this time. And Lord bless you guys. Love you guys. Um, we may be outside next week. I'll let you know. Stay tuned. Look at the Facebook. Look at YouTube. Look at our website. We'll let you know. Uh, but we'll either be in here or be outside. We'll be somewhere. Just drive around asking for Philippi. You'll find us. I'm kidding. Lord bless you guys.
Not today. Next week. Next week, yeah. Okay.